You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, a news podcast made possible by members of The Local. We are recording this episode on Wednesday, the 6th of September. And today we're going to be talking about the dubious joys of fermented herring. We'll look into some of the details of what's being called the biggest trial in Swedish history. A year on from Sweden's last general election, we'll look at what the locals' readers have been telling us about how they've been affected by the so-called paradigm shift in Swedish migration policy. And finally, we'll examine why economists in Sweden are talking again about whether the country should join the euro. I'm your host, Paul Omani, and I'm joined today from our Malmo studio by the locals Emma Lovgren and Richard Orange. And we'll also be hearing later from one of Sweden's foremost economists, Lars Kalmfors. Welcome back, Emma and Richard. This is your first podcast since the summer break. Have you been? Uh, well, we're selling our house and the market is incredibly slow moving at the moment. So it's actually been a very stressful summer break. Uh, getting oh, the distraction dear. of this podcast is actually, you know, it feels like a relief to be back. Well, glad to be of service. Yeah, that does sound really stressful. How about you, Richard? It's been lovely, actually. It's the first summer I've had not being freelance, although I think I had a few a few days off last year. But anyway, but the first proper summer I've had off in, I think, 15 years. So, wow. uh, so of course, it pissed with rain the whole time. But uh, <laughs> it was it was dry enough that we could still, you know, do a lot of swimming in the lake and, you know, and just sort of just relax and work on this house that we're still building. Yeah, it's been lovely. Brilliant. Sounds great. And uh, really good to have you both back. Before we get into our discussion, I just want to say to listeners, um, if you're not yet a member of The Local, please do consider supporting us by joining. We are an independent media outlet and your support is what allows us to produce the news and all of the cultural background and practical explainer articles that we talk about on this podcast. If you'd like to join, you can find a link to a special offer for podcast listeners in the show notes, or you can access it directly at thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer. Okay, so we're going to start this week, as promised, with fermented herring. Uh, thankfully, I don't have any with me in this really tiny studio, but you wrote an article recently, Richard, about how you hosted a surströmming party a few weeks ago. Can you tell us what possessed you and how it went? Well, it was my wife's idea, not mine. Her parents are from Hernesand, which is pretty near the heartland of fermented herring in Sweden, in the kind of, not the far north, but the nearly far north. And mm. uh, But she grew up in Uppsala, so I don't think she spent a lot of time eating fermented herring in her upbringing. But anyway. Hernesand is not in any way near the far north. <laughs> but it's near the, it's near the Sustrimming belt. 
So a streaming belt is kind of Herga Kusin, but the first I learned of it is she posted up a uh, an event on Facebook, which was a bit tongue in cheek, and she and she was very strict, and she said, "This is a party for people who love fermented herring, and not for those who who aren't sure if they love it or who expect to be served any kind of." alternative food and she was very strict about that this was and she was also very keen that it wouldn't be i don't know if you've seen a few years ago there was an absolute endless youtube clips of people trying surf trimming and yes. kind of spitting it out I and going i mean I've, I've made quite a few of them myself but um <laughs> but, but she was adamant that it wouldn't be like that it would be a serious gourmet experience and we would mm. taste it and like it and <laughs> Although there absolutely was alternative food there. I know she she lied. It was a bit. It was really nice actually. I mean, I, I have to say. I, and then, and then she invited all her friends, and everyone was very much otherwise engaged. So then I invited <laughs> other people, including Emma and Becky, who and Emma could come and Becky couldn't. But I have to say, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I really enjoyed the whole theatre of it. It's a bit like mm. a fireworks night. You know how like um, somebody goes off with all the fireworks and sets them off? It's a, it's a bit like that because, you know, somebody yeah. goes off to open the can, you know, at a safe distance <laughs> <laughs> and, and you kind of open it and then the smell, which is quite intense, it hits you and then... And then, but it's not so intense that you kind of feel sick when you're opening it. You just kind of go, oof, that is a smell. And I'd ordered a specialist sustrimming and it had won awards over the years. And I think it was because it's quite soon after the sustrimming's premiere, which is, you know, the first day of this where you're supposed to start eating sustrimming. It's only, mm. I think, maybe less than a month since it had been canned. So maybe the gases yeah. hadn't built up. If you'd let, leave it for a couple of years, probably would have exploded a bit more. And mm. we'd got all the trimmings ready. So there's you have this stuff, tunbrud, which is like a kind of flatbread, and you have it both soft and dry. And then we have you have mandel potatoes, which I think are called amandine potatoes, and mm. then um, feel, which is kind of like sour cream and shortbread onions. And you need quite a lot of red onions to kind of counteract the the taste. And then I kind of went out and dropped one of these slimy fermented herrings onto everyone's plate. And I have to say, I, I, I mean, I think it's, I think it's delicious. I, I, I really like it. It's a kind of very strong, very complex flavor with a kind of really big umami kick. But I'm quite, mm. I'm quite into fermenting things, so I make my own yeah. surakot, my sauerkraut and kimchi, and and I love how how you get these extra flavors once the bacteria have got to work and whatever you've got. So I think it, it's a bit like a kind of French blue cheese, like a stinky one, but in fish form. Oh, it's ni nice to hear that positive experience. You don't, you don't hear that very often. And Emma, as Richard mentioned, you were invited to the party and you could have said no, but I understand that you did go along. So what was it like from your perspective? I'm realizing now I could have said no. She could have. It was, it was <laughs> voluntary though. Well, I'm not as giddy about the fermentation process as Richard is. I feel like I'm going to make enemies in kind of both the Sustreming lovers and the Sustreming haters camp now. But I've had it twice now and I kind of find it a little bit just meh, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Like it smells a bit. Doesn't smell as bad as you'd expect it to. Although at the party, that could be because I was sitting next to Richard's dog's bum. So. <laughs> but it tastes salty, but it doesn't really taste of anything else. And you eat it with all of these like trimmings, which Richard mentioned, which are mm. also a little bit bland. So I'm, I'm disappointed. But uh, the, the party was lovely. I, um, I have to say, I told my mum about it, though, and she's from northern Sweden. 
and has very strong opinions about everything Northern Swedish, even though she's actually lived in the South for decades. And she was like, I never eat Suströmming with beginners. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good thing she wasn't invited then. (laughs) No, but we'll be doing it again next year, I think. I think we'll make it an annual event. I think it's it's I think she just doesn't like it when people go, oh, 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 to things that she considers to be food. Yeah, it's, I think it's just making a big deal out of something that is, should just be yeah. normal. I think you yeah, get your excuses ready, Emma. Make sure you're washing your hair that date next year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, thanks both for that. I ate Surströmming once at a party in Uppsala in 1999. And yeah, I don't think I've eaten it since. And make of that what you will. We'll put a link in the episode notes to Richard's recent article, which is a really good read. Now, we're going to move on now to the trial that began this week of two former executives at the Swedish oil company Lundin Oil. The trial is being described as the biggest in Swedish history. It's been 13 years in the making. The investigation report is 80,000 pages long and a verdict is not expected until 2026. So it's obviously an extremely complex case. But Richard, can you give us some background about who's on trial and why. Yeah, well, it goes back to 1997 when Lundin Oil, which is then called International Petroleum Company, signed an Mm. exploration deal with Sudan's national government in Khartoum for a block in the southern part of Sudan, which was then racked by a civil war of people who wanted to set that, you know, to secede and set up their own country. And they eventually did. So South South, South Sudan is now a new country. Um, And um, what the prosecution said in their opening arguments is that when Lundin Oil started exploring for oil and found oil in 1999, that the Sudanese military, the North Sudanese military, together with some of their allied militia groups, completely cleared the area of civilians. And they used, you know, aerial bombardments, uh, shooting people from helicopter gunships and burning villages and crops, you know, really quite horrific stuff was going on. And Lundin had given the Sudanese government the job of what they called security around the oil field. So the Mm. argument from the prosecution is that by doing this, they were sort of condoning the, you know, atrocities or human rights violations that took place. And they claim that Ian Lundin, who's the company's chairman, and Alex Schneider, who is its chief executive, are complicit because of these agreements. And as he went into court, Ian Ladine said these accusations are completely false and very vague and that they had never had anything to do with the conflict. And he said that, 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 that the company had, in fact, been a force for good in South Sudan. And you could maybe argue it is, because after they found the oil, that then provided an impetus to strike an agreement between the North and South of Sudan so they could have a uh, you know revenue-sharing agreement. And, and mm. I don't know. But, but, but you, know, you could argue that the discovery of oil did help resolve the conflict. But anyway, but the trial is supposedly the biggest in Swedish history. And as you said, it's 80,000 pages. I mean, I don't know how you can read that. That's like 5,000 novels. I mean, who, how can the judge possibly absorb that, that information? Information and so and it's going to last until February 2026. So it's it's going to it's going to be we're going to be talking about this on and off for the next couple of years. That's oh, because the judge is going to need that many years to read the report. <laughs> I mean, exactly, it's going to be it's ridiculous. Um, but but this goes back for ages. Like my very first job in journalism, 20 years ago, nearly. More yeah. than, Jesus, more than 20 years, I was <laughs> writing about what Lundin Oil was doing in the South of Sudan. It was a big issue when it was going on. 
and it was reported on a lot when it was going. And it's been one of the classic, the like, Swedish journalists have been going to South Sudan. They, you know, so many people have been there to write about it. So it's like it's been, yeah. it's, it's the most obvious kind of Swedish journalist Africa story for decades. So anyway, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, they face like life in prison right, if they get done, the two mm. executives. Okay, well, thanks for that roundup. And I guess, yeah, as I said, we'll see what happens in three years' time. Okay, now, so moving on to the one-year anniversary of Sweden's last general election, which, after much wrangling, eventually led to the creation of a minority three-party right-wing government that relies on the support of the far-right Sweden Democrats, a party that recorded a slightly better result than Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson's moderates. And just to recap, this unusual solution gave the Sweden Democrats an awful lot of power when negotiating what came to be known as the TIDA Agreement, a document that was thrashed out by the four parties at a castle outside Vesteros, and which prompted a paradigm shift on migration, as they called it. So many of the locals' readers said at the time that they were very concerned about the direction Sweden was taking. So, Emma, what are readers telling us now, one year later? Well, we ran a reader survey this week to find out. And at the time of recording, so the responses have only just started trickling in, so I don't have a full picture yet, but we'll have that in an article on the site by the time people listen to this podcast. Yeah. But... The sense I'm getting from it so far is that the reactions are fairly varied. But one of the things that stands out is that um, a lot of people are feeling like the mood has shifted a bit in Sweden. That it's sort of become more like, quote unquote, okay to say things about immigrants and then go, oh, we don't mean you. Some said that they're getting more comments like, go back to where you came from than they used to. Right. I guess like people who have negative opinions and experiences are more perhaps more likely to want to vent them in a survey, but people also pointed out positive things. Uh, one person who had got Swedish citizenship last year, they they said that they had been, invite, had been invited for a ceremony in their municipality, which they said had made them feel like someone actually cared, which they didn't necessarily feel was the case on a national level. Mm. Another one said that they lived in a small village in southern Sweden and they had always found their neighbours to be decent and kind and helpful and that hadn't changed. Uh, one said that even though they were personally unhappy with the re- election result, they still felt like the government kind of still stands up for basic human rights, like um, mm. like the government or the prime minister threw a, a pride party during Stockholm Pride Week, for example, this summer. Yeah. Some people said that they thought it was going to be worse, but actually things haven't changed much and have perhaps even kind of improved, especially at least when it comes to kind of admin stuff like work permit processing times and that sort of yeah. thing. Although many of those who pointed that out can also add that they were maybe speaking from like a place of kind of privilege because they yeah. were sort of highly skilled foreign talent that Sweden has said it wants to attract and that other immigrants maybe had it worse than they mm. did. And I think we've got one quote from a reader which kind of makes that point and I'll, I'll read it out. And she said that, I don't feel unwelcome, but that's entirely because I'm from North America and as soon as someone hears me speak English, they're fascinated. I'm ethnically Middle Eastern and I can feel the shift from when someone assumes I'm another blackhead in Sweden to being a North American in Sweden. Despite this, immigration laws apply just the same to me. So while socially I don't feel unwelcome, legally I feel precarious. 
Okay, yeah. Um, yes, some really interesting viewpoints there. It'll be interesting to see them all put together in that article you were mentioning. So watch out for that. And we can put a link in the notes when it's ready. How about you, Richard? Do you have any views on how things have developed over the past year for immigrants to Sweden? I think for a lot of our readers, things might actually be improving because the change of government has meant that they've really decided to get on top of the problems with work permits and they have set yeah. up a new system that kicks into place starting next year, which will make a big difference to foreign IT workers and engineers mm. and a lot of the sort of more highly skilled labour migrants coming to Sweden. And that will be an improvement. And to be fair, the, the Social Democrats weren't really acting on that. It was a problem for like six, seven years and they hadn't really yeah. taken much action on it. And I mean, one thing I think it has, like, like people are saying about it being more okay to say, to voice kind of anti-immigrant sentiments. I mean, I don't doubt that that's true, but when it comes to the political rhetoric and public discourse, I've actually been quite relieved because if you look at what happened to Denmark when the far-right Danish People's Party gained a similar sort of leverage over politics, the uh, the other parties, the centre-right party, ended up adopting their rhetoric and trying to kind of compete with them by being more and more shocking and outspoken in the horrible yeah. things they could say about immigrants. And that, I don't feel, has really happened. I've, I've been surprised that the moderates have tried to be as, as legalistic. They've tended to tone down the rhetoric on immigration as they drive through some of these Sweden Democrat policies, rather than, you know, like in Denmark, where she celebrated with a cake because of the 50 ways she'd made life harder for immigrants, mm. the, their immigration minister. So, so it's been a very different, the way the moderates have behaved is very different from how the Liberal Party behaved in um, in Denmark. And I think that's that's quite a relief, I think. And in the election campaign last year, it felt like Sweden was going in that Denmark direction because both the Social Democrats and the moderates were kind of pushing in a kind of anti-immigrant rhetoric. But since the election, they seem to have dialed that down, which I think has been quite quite a relief for me. Mm. But, but there are definitely some like fringe politicians in in all parties, I guess, that are saying things now openly that they would not have said 10 no, years absolutely. ago. Absolutely. So, but maybe the leadership are kind of holding back a bit more. And one of the, the consequences of the sort of policy shift was that the migration minister decided to replace uh, Mikhail Ribnovic as the head of the migration agency. Who has she replaced him with? And what do we know about the new migration agency chief? Well, her name is Maria Mindhammar. She's the current head of the Swedish Public Employment Service, which is known as Arbetsförmedlingen in Swedish. Yeah. And listeners will probably have come into contact with that if they've ever looked for or lost a job in Sweden. I can't say I know that much about her because at the press conference where she was introduced, she answered any question that could be seen as politically loaded, which was pretty much all of the questions with it. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to comment on that. Uh, <laughs> based on what I've picked up from kind of the gossip, though, is that she's um, she's seen as a good boss who's happy to communicate with stuff. She's seen as a doer, but not necessarily someone with big visions. Like she mm. she does the job she's asked to do to do, and she does it well. And that yeah. might be pretty much exactly what the government is looking for at the moment. When we spoke to her predecessor, uh, Mikael Ribbenvik, a few months ago, he told us. There was a plan in the works to speed up the approval process for highly skilled workers. And Richard, you alluded to this a moment ago, and we got some new information on that during the week. What do we know about this overhaul of how the agency deals with work permits? 
Yeah, um, the agency has handed over to the government a detailed description of the new system that it plans to put into place and has said that it will kick into action in the new year. I think pretty much on New Year's Day, I think, was the sense I got. And um, there's no real changes to what Mikhail Rubinvik and the agency itself outlined before the summer, which is that there will be a new Category A of highly skilled workers for whom the agency promises it will be able to process applications for work permits within 30 days. And there will also be a new special service teams which will support companies and employers who have big international recruitment needs like, you know, Northvolt, the new battery plant in the north of Sweden. And the certification process by which companies like EY and some law firms helped companies get certified and then you could have a a fast track process that's being phased out and a lot of the people who work on the certification process will now be part of these service teams so it's almost like the migration agency is taking over what the accountancy firms used to do and doing that for them and i think when we spoke to rubenvik he said you know we want to work more with the companies and the employers and less make it like the individual applies for a work permit. It's more, it'll more be done through the companies, I think, is, is, is the vision. So it'd be interesting to see how it works out in the new year. Yeah, absolutely. So th- thanks for um, filling us in on those plans. And we'll link to an article in the notes with more details on what we can expect. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're going to skip on now to one of the most divisive debates in recent Swedish history. It's not surströmming this time, but whether or not Sweden should ditch the krona and instead adopt the euro as its currency. Before we listen to what an economist has to say on the subject, Emma, can you remind us of what happened when Sweden voted on the euro in a 2003 referendum? So I was in high school at the time and I wasn't old enough to vote. I remember, though, that it was a bit of a weird referendum because unrelated to the euro, uh, the foreign minister, she got killed just a few days before the vote, which uh, kind of put a damper on the campaign, as you'd expect, and um, because her face was on like lots of kind of posters for the euro referendum and um, all TV debates were cancelled and the country was in mourning, basically. But, um, But the vote was held anyway. And in the end, Sweden voted no with a 56% majority. Yeah, okay, yeah. Thanks for that. I'd actually forgotten that the referendum happened just after the murder of Anna Lind. Richard spoke a few days ago to one of Sweden's preeminent economists, Lars 
Kalmfors, Professor of International Economics at Stockholm University, who is now more positive towards the idea of joining the euro than he was two decades ago. Let's hear what he had to say about why the euro debate has begun to surface again in Sweden. I think there are two reasons. Um, One is the weak krona. I mean, that the krona has depreciated for for a long time. Uh, I think that is one thing. And I think the other thing is that uh, the, the changed geopolitical situation, the, the war in Ukraine, have made Swedes sort of uh, uh, recalibrate our view of our position in the world. Uh, and of course, NATO membership or application for NATO membership is uh, uh, the most obvious thing. But I think it spills over also to the euro issue. Do you think it's uh, unfair that the krona is so weak? I mean, I saw that the uh, Riksbank's chief was saying that you know Sweden was being treated like a, you know, like a, uh, an economic, uh, you know, the, the krona was trading like like the currency of a economic sort of problem case when Sweden's actually quite well managed economically. He was saying it seems wrong. I mean, what, what's your thought on that? Like a banana republic. <laughs> well, I mean, any calculation you could make uh, of uh, sort of an equilibrium exchange rate would tell you that uh, the krona should be much stronger. And I mean, in the end, it will become stronger. I think that's the only thing we knew, know with certainty about uh, exchange rates is that they they do vary a lot in a way that we can't really explain. But of course, now it's, it's the Swedish krona, and it's there's been a, tre- a depreciation trend since 2013. So it's for 10 years, and now it's in- intensified. So I do think it's un- unfair, but. Uh, Uh, I mean, it's determined in the market, and we know that expectations play a big role. But it it has happened, of course, uh, several times during international crisis for the Swedish krona. And it happened during the COVID, in the beginning of the COVID crisis. And it happens now. I think you need to have a perspective on it. I think in earlier it it has benefited us during international crisis because Sweden, I mean, when when the krona then depreciated, Swedish firms could gain market shares. Mm-hmm. So it it it, it helped uh, stabilize uh, output and employment. Then, mm-hmm. Th- then the problem was too low inflation, so uh, inflation was not an issue. But but this time it's it it is different. I mean now it, the depreciation of the krona sort of counteracts the efforts of the Riksbank to uh, um, get inflation down and, and, and to reduce aggregate demand. It's working in the exactly the opposite direction. So this time, yes, it is a problem. We've just been listening to the economist Lars Kalmfors, uh, Richard. You also chatted to Carl Hammer, chief strategist at SEB Bank. Did his views on this differ in any way from those of Lars Kalmfors? Well, he's also been writing in articles that he's now leaning towards supporting Euro membership. In contrast with his colleague Robert Berekvist, who we also have uh, interviewed quite often, who is uh, you know one of the main opponents. But anyway, I think 
what was interesting is that they they were both changing their minds for slightly different reasons because Calmforce thinks that the market is unfairly undervaluing the krona and treating Sweden like a banana republic. But Hammer seemed to think that the weakness was more justified. And the reason he thought that is because the big companies and financial institutions based in Sweden are increasingly doing all their business in other currencies. They're abandoning the krona. So the big Swedish companies now invoice in euros. They pay for raw materials in euros. And on the other side, Sweden's big pension funds, who invest all of Sweden's pension money, are investing, you know, a huge chunk of their money in overseas markets in euros and dollars. So he thinks that this this is leading to a kind of this is kind of hollowing out the foundations of the currency and mm. that that is a threat to Sweden's economic stability and increases the arguments for joining the euro because so much of what we do is in euros anyway. Sweden's kind of switched to the euro while still keeping the krona. That's what he yeah. said. Um, and when they were talking about the the pros and cons of joining the the euro, what were the arguments they were making? I mean, it's the same arguments that there's always been, really. The big pro is that having to change currency is an impediment to trade. It's a barrier to trade. And if you removed it, trade between Sweden and the Eurozone would be slightly easier. So there would be slightly more of it. And that would slightly increase economic growth, which over a long period, like 10, 20 years, would build up to quite a significant difference. And the con is that the euro is a suboptimal currency zone because the ECB controls monetary policy, but the European Commission can't really control fiscal policy, what the member states spend government money on. And you yeah. know, and the and the reverse, the member states can't control monetary policy, but they can can only control fiscal policy. So the risk mm. would be that if there's some kind of economic crisis that only affects Sweden. Sweden loses the ability to use monetary policy, which is, you know, raising or lowering interest rates to deal right. with it. And and you lose one of the main tools that you have to manage the economy. And on the other side, there's a risk that the European Central Bank might want to raise interest rates higher than people in Sweden, where there's unusual, you know, people, lots of people have are very indebted and have variable rate mortgages can, can handle. So, you know, if you put up interest rates very high, you could crash the Swedish economy, but it might mm. be just what you need in Germany or France. Right. So, 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 so that's the main argument against. And what Kalmforscher argues is that Sweden's government debt, which was really high, when the euro referendum took place, you know, it was, uh, there'd just been the Swedish uh, financial crisis, the, yeah. and uh, is now really, really low. It's now sort of 33%. It's gone from 70% to 33%. It's one of the lowest uh, national debts in, 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 in the European Union, which means that if there is a crisis, Sweden has a lot of fiscal firepower. So you can, you can do things to rescue the economy that you don't need to use monetary policy. You can just spend government money and that lowers the risk of joining the euro that's his main argument and that's what's changed so the fact that the, so the fact that the krona is super low at the moment that's the reason that people are talking about it but it's not the best reason to change your mind on whether to join the currency or not yeah as i should mention that you've written these interviews up in uh, an article that i read just before we started recording this and uh, i have to say i learned a lot uh, so i recommend that people give it a read if we move on a little bit from what the economists are saying emma it's been 20 years since the referendum is there any political will to have another go at it now uh, no not really so we've got the liberals they're campaigning to join the euro but I mean, the Liberals campaigning to join the euro is a bit like the Green Party campaigning against climate change. 
Uh, And they're also the party with probably the least amount of political clout in Sweden. Uh, The Social Democrats, which is the biggest party on the centre-left, they're not likely to bring it up because they're split right down the middle on it as, as they were at the time of the referendum. The moderates who are running the government, they would presumably be kind of in favour of it, but they're in bed with the Sweden Democrats, who could not be more against it if they tried. So they're unlikely to start campaigning on it as well. And and the Liberals, sort of, they came out with a big debate article, I think, in Aftonbladet this week. And I think that's partly because they're, we're building up to the European election. So they're trying to fix their a position in the minds of voters that they are a party that, that is you know, bit pro-EU and big on Brussels. So so I don't think they expect it to lead to a national debate that will lead to, you know, a new referendum. No, they're just positioning themselves a little bit. But but having said that, I mean, nobody saw the NATO shift coming. And I think the fact that Sweden has shifted on the NATO maybe maybe has changed the mind of people. People are more ready for kind of big re-evaluations of where Sweden stands. And so it's possible that if there's some kind of catalyst you could yeah. you could see a shift. I mean, I don't know what that would be, like a, an economic crisis of some form. Mm. Do you want to make a prediction before we wrap up for today? I'll start with you, Emma. How likely do you think it is that Sweden will join the euro in the next 10 years? Well, it takes a long time for opinion to shift in Sweden, but when it does shift, it tends to shift pretty decisively, just like what happened to NATO. So like Richard said, I guess the same thing could maybe happen to the euro debate. But I... Yeah. I don't think so. Uh, there was a survey back in May where just over 50% said that they would be against joining the euro. And 30% said that they would be in favour of it. But, I mean, the rest were undecided. So I guess who knows? Like, sorry, yeah. that's a very yes, no, maybe kind of answer. But I think basically, no, I don't think it's going to happen in the next 10 years. I'm okay. just trying to add these caveats in case I'm wrong. <laughs> How about you, Richard? What do you I think? have no idea. I, I think I, 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 my hunch, based on nothing, is that ten years is a long time in politics, and I think it could easily shift. You could easily see a shift. I mean, I suppose with Britain out of the European Union, there are far fewer countries that are, you know, EU members but not Euro members, and yeah. that changes the calculation. And the Commission could start getting a bit more arm twisty, putting a bit more pressure on countries because you know Sweden, like every other EU country, apart from Denmark, Denmark has an opt out, but Sweden doesn't have an opt out on monetary union. I don't think. No, which means we, theoretically, we, you should we have, Sweden should be preparing we, yes, for it. We have theoretically promised that we are going to be members of the exactly, Euro. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so you could see with that weakened position with with the UK out of it that the Commission will start putting more pressure and actually say, actually, we mean this. You know, we're going to hold you to this, and you have to make a decision, or you have to fight for a opt out and we should see yeah I, I don't mean, think it's I impossible mean, they, they could just decide to join the euro they don't need to have a referendum like there's no law saying that there needs to be a referendum before we join the euro I think one of the economists you spoke to Richard I can't remember which one sort of outlined a scenario where it would be very much in Sweden's self-interest like if there was a banking crisis here for example because you know in the reverse situation a lot of Big Eurozone countries were angry at having to bail out countries on the southern periphery. But if there's a banking crisis, 
in Sweden, it'd be quite nice to be bailed out, right? When I spoke to Lars Kornfors, I said, you know, one of the big arguments against joining the euro is that you have to join the European Banking Union, which would mean that Sweden would have to take part in bailouts of banks in countries like Italy that haven't regulated their financial sectors properly. And he said, yeah, but on the other hand, they would bail us out if we had a financial crisis, which is not at all impossible given the high level of private debt that there is in Sweden. You know, Sweden's economy is... is in some ways, it's it's a strange economy. It's like the public debt yeah. is really low, but the private debt is absolutely sky high. So it's a very unbalanced and unstable sort of economy it's, at the moment. It's really solid and shaky at the same time. Yeah, no, exactly. Okay, great. Thanks um, both very much. Um, we'll leave it there for this week. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. And remember that you can find links to the stories we've been talking about in the show notes. Our panellists today were Emma Lovegrain and Richard Orange. Our sound engineer is Reese Edwards. I'm Paul O'Mahony and we'll be back again next week with another episode of Sweden in Focus. Until then, take care. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.